Hello and welcome to Scanner Today's Last Week in AI podcast, where you can hear us chat about what's going on with AI. As usual, in this episode, we will summarize and discuss some of last week's most interesting AI news. You can also check out our Last Week in AI text newsletter at lastweekin.ai for articles we did not cover in this episode. I am one of your hosts, Andrei Korenkov. I am just about done with my PhD at Stanford, where I studied AI, and I'm now working at a startup that is doing some stuff with generative AI. I am once again not Jeremy Harris, but Daniel Bashir. Uh, I've been working with Andre on Skynet Today and The Gradient, where I host the podcast. I currently work on machine learning compilers at AWS. All right, welcome back, Daniel. Uh, Jeremy is traveling this week, so he is once again not able to do it. Uh, but he should be back next week for anyone who is missing our regular co-host. <laughs> Yeah, I'm sure folks are, are getting annoyed at me already. I think I think hopefully listeners enjoy you just as much as Jeremy. It's a it's a breath of fresh air. But we are a little short on time this episode, so we will not be doing uh, listener comments or questions. We will have to do that next week. And let me just quickly summarize what we will be doing this episode. We will be talking about tools and apps where where Microsoft and Adobe and Google and all these companies announced new cool things. In applications and business, we'll be talking about NVIDIA as a big deal and investments in AI and a lot of stuff about autonomous driving, which is kind of unusual. And projects and open source, we'll once again be talking about stability AI and some cool projects we just saw recently being open sourced. In research and advancements, we'll be covering some things we've already covered sort of in the past, some vision language models, uh, some ways to manipulate images, and some more out there stuff. In policy and safety, we'll be talking about what the U.S. presidential administration is thinking about and some ideas for AI safety long term. And finally, in synthetic and uh, synthetic media and art, we'll just cover kind of one story to wrap things up quickly about a fake image of an explosion, which should be exciting. Yeah, so with that, let's dive into our first section on tools and apps. The first story we have for you today is actually a pretty big deal, at least from my read. So you're probably well aware of Microsoft's close collaboration and integration with OpenAI, what's been happening with GitHub Copilot, with ChatGPT, with Bing, and all of these integrations. So now what Microsoft just announced this week is actually a number of ways in which AI is going to become pretty central to the experience of using the Windows 11 operating system. Maybe the main thing that they're introducing here is something called Windows Copilot, which is essentially a centralized AI personal assistant for the OS. So it's kind of a, a button that's front and center on your taskbar. And once it's open, the sidebar sort of stays consistent across your apps. It'll help you take actions, customize settings, connect across your favorite apps, and you can ask it questions just as you would a normal AI chatbot. That's going to be available for preview in June. They also announced a couple of other things here. So Bing Chat is getting plugins to Windows. Developers can now integrate their apps within Windows Copilot. They are introducing a new hybrid AI loop 
to support AI development across platforms and across Azure. They're introducing something called Dev Home. This is a developer-specific thing. In addition to that, uh, Microsoft Store AI Hub, which is a dedicated section curating dev-built AI experiences, a Windows AI library for empowering every Windows 11 developer to essentially be an AI developer by providing ready-to-use ML models and APIs. So a lot of stuff going on here. And this feels to me like a pretty big drop, but I'm curious, Andre, how you respond to all of this. Yeah, I think this is kind of a pretty big deal and it just shows how fast Microsoft is moving. We've talked about it a lot. Uh, this was, by the way, at Microsoft's Build Conference. So even though this is an announcement of just about Windows Copilot, there's a lot here that's just specific to Windows devs. And um, that's interesting because, uh, as you noted, Part of the emphasis here is that it's going to be easy for developers of Windows apps to make their apps AI-enabled, right? Uh, straight with support from Microsoft, which of course has ChatGPT, and that could be a real advantage when competing against Mac and Mac OS because Apple is, let's face it, pretty weak on AI. They don't have anything like ChatGPT. And if Windows, uh, if Microsoft makes it way easier to make powerful AI-enabled programs on uh, Windows, then it might make it much more appealing than it is currently to you know general people. Yeah, I think in particular, I don't know how true this is right now, but often for developers, especially Windows, seems like not the best experience. It's often some Unix-like operating system, even Mac is certainly preferred. So especially with some of these plugins, integrations, these parts of the experience, I am curious if Microsoft, it does seem like in general recently, they focused a lot on developer experience. So I am curious if this is going to start to pull people over to their operating system as well. Yeah, and it kind of builds on a lot of stuff they've done. They own GitHub, Right, and they have introduced Copilot, which is interesting. They've introduced new features to Visual Studio, which is their IDE for C Sharp and the general kind of application to build Windows uh, apps with. So it feels like some of these more longer term bets that just make the Microsoft ecosystem more appealing, uh, which is something that Apple has been, you know, really good at, and Microsoft maybe not so much. Yeah, yeah. It seems like um, this is another kind of vertical extension, right? Because I know for me, for example, I use Visual Studio Code a lot. Um, of course, every dev out there is on GitHub. So Microsoft has really kind of expanded their reach when it comes to the software level. And once you hit the operating system, then you're starting to see things like Linux, like Apple come in and play a big role there. But Microsoft is really, it seems, trying to reach down and see, okay, well, AI systems can be really powerful in the software we use, but can we can we reach a layer deeper and see what they can do in the terminal, for example? I think one of the big introductions here in this announcement is the fact that you are going to be able to interface with an AI assistant, assistant and kind of get command suggestions and that sort of natural language feedback within your terminal, which is really, really cool. Yeah, and that kind of feels like it could work on Windows, right? Because Windows does have 
a lot of these things from Microsoft. They have Outlook for email, they have Word, they have their own browser. And now you could imagine this Microsoft, uh, this Windows Copilot just kind of connecting to all of this. And you just say, you know, open Word and write the little essay or whatever. And then that's even quicker. Uh, so I don't know. Yeah, it's hard to imagine exactly how this Windows Copilot thing would work, but uh, yeah, good on Microsoft for continuing to move fast with all of their AI stuff. Indeed. Next, moving to Adobe with a pretty exciting story. Adobe is adding AI image generator Firefly to Photoshop. So we've mentioned before that Adobe has their own text-to-image generator, similar to Dolly or Midjourney, that they've released. And now it's going to be built into Photoshop and their infill functionality, where you just kind of select a portion of an image and say, put something here. Now that's going to support just general text to image kind of stuff. So you can, you know, select the sky and say, put a plane here, for instance, and you'll get a plane generated by AI that, as we know, looks pretty good. So uh, I think it's kind of obvious that this is kind of a big deal. Photoshop is so standard in photo editing and lots of applications and this appears to be implemented well. It appears to, from the demos, work pretty fast, be pretty high quality. And very importantly, as with Firefly in general, it is safe to copyright. So it's the training data is not uh, using any copyrighted content that would make it problematic to uh, release images uh, that have used this tool. So... Yeah, this is a pretty striking example of where AI is becoming part of these very, very integrated tools, very commonly used tools, and um, it's just becoming part of a workflow, I guess. Yeah, I think this is a really exciting development, especially given how pervasive Photoshop is. I know you and I use it, for example. So I'm curious if, if in our own use cases, we'll find anything for that. Um but you, you did start to kind of gesture towards the problem of training data, and that's something really interesting to dig into, I suppose, because when you think about how, where, like what the implications for training data and copyright are when it comes to Adobe's own system, then that's going to have some downstream implications for the rest of us that are then using that system to make our own images. And... Apparently, the model is only trained on content that the company has the right to use. So in theory, anything should be safe for commercial use. Um, but again, there's there are a lot of, I think, worries to have here. But at the very least, if we, if we believe Adobe, then I think that you and I and anybody else using Photoshop should hopefully be fine not getting sued. Yeah, exactly. Especially as the laws and policies regarding these synthetic media, uh, AI-generated imagery are still not here, and we don't really know what they'll be. So if nothing else, if you have to choose an option, this is a good one. Another reason this is pretty good is that when you use it, 
there is the option to use content cre- credentials, which is basically like a system that attaches attribution data that makes it easy to know whether an image was created or edited using AI. You can actually go to verify.contentauthenticity.org and input an image, and it will tell you if it has this nutrition label, this tag that it was created with AI. And that's pretty great, right? Because I think this has been such a pre- prevalent problem of how do we know where something AI is not? How do we know if it has been modified with AI or not to create misinformation? Well, in this case, Adobe is kind of baking it in from the beginning. For sure. Choose your tools carefully. On to the lightning round for this section. First up, we're back to Microsoft. The headline here is that Bing is now the default search for ChatGPT. And what's going on here is essentially what I just said. So the default search experience for ChatGPT and that search functionality is going to be, has already been rolled out to ChatGPT plus users and is soon going to be enabled for all free ChatGPT users through a plugin. And this is essentially just the same way that Bing's chat experience is powered by GPT-4 and uses citations to links. So OpenAI's chatbot is going to include search and web data, and that's also going to include citations, which I think is a nice important bump to the system. Of course, everybody at this point is pretty familiar with the fact that these AI systems hallucinate, which is in part, and the way some people view it, kind of an artifact of what we would like for them to do. But for a lot of use cases that people want for these systems, it is pretty important that they provide some kind of attribution. So it'll be interesting to see how the experience of using it changes from here. Yeah, it's hard to say if this is a big deal or not. Uh, I think the ability to even use ChatGPT integrated with web search is not quite public yet. But uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's kind of predictable here. Microsoft is... You know, wringing everything it can out of uh, ChatGPT and its investment in OpenAI. So again, congrats, Microsoft. You made a really good bet with OpenAI. Next, we go to Google and we go back to image editing. Uh, So the story here is that Google's new magic editor uses AI to totally transform your photos. This was an announced at Google I.O. Uh, just a week ago. I don't think we covered it, but Google's Photos app, which is their app for storing largely uh, photos in the cloud, but also editing them, now has this feature called Magic Editor, which allows you to do some pretty impressive edits powered by AI. So for instance, you they showed how you can select a person or an object in an image and just move it. Uh, to be you know somewhere else, and then the AI will just fill in that uh, piece of a background that was covered up before. So that's just one example. Uh, and uh, there are probably other things I'll add with Magic Editor. So here you're using AI to edit an image from just a phone app, really, or a web app. So again, Google, Microsoft, everyone is introducing these AI features very rapidly. Yeah, this is pretty exciting. I've already started to notice since I use Google Photos a lot, I often get suggestions or 
kind of collages of photos or it'll start suggesting, hey, we made this edit to your background or just the general like vibrancy of your picture. And that's often a really nice thing to see. So I think it'll be cool just to have these nice little gimmicks and tools. It's like not a huge maybe production quality thing all the time, but just having that sort of in your pocket that you can play around with your personal photos. Um, that's just a really nice little little feature there. Yeah, I think being able to kind of move people or objects to be more centered, like there are practical applications for this and I can see it being useful. And I'm also a big fan of Google Photos. So this is exciting for me. We are really ping-ponging here. So back to OpenAI. Uh, OpenAI has expanded the ChatGPT app to quite a few more countries in addition to the US. These include European nations, say France, Germany, Ireland, as well as New Zealand, Nigeria, South Korea, and the UK. Um, in basically the first six days since its initial availability in the US last Thursday, that was May 18th, the ChatGPT mobile app crossed the mark of half a million downloads, according to the data that was shared by an app intelligence firm, data.ai, which makes it one of the highest performing new apps. Understandably, given the massive success of ChatGPT proper, the mobile app was going to be very, uh, very successful here. I think it'll be interesting to watch as well, given that they're expanding the app into European countries and all, how some of these discussions play out with regards to regulation and OpenAI kind of staying in Europe. I know there was some back and forth on OpenAI being like, please regulate us. And then Europe says, here's what we're going to do. And then OpenAI says, don't, don't do it like that. Um, <laughs> apparently, Sam, Sam Altman has tweeted that they have no plans to move out of Europe. So I think that uh, you know a lot of these were in jest, but it'll be interesting to, to see what's going on. For sure. Uh, the app is free and doesn't uh, have any ads. So still kind of on the same track record of just losing a lot of money on ChatGPT. I am an Android user, so I'm sad because they don't have an Android app yet. But uh, there's a lot of other apps out there that sort of do the same thing just via the ChatGPT API. But it's nice to see OpenAI doing it. And wrapping up, wow, you, you were totally right. We are ping-ponging because now we go back to Google. I probably should have thought about this ahead of time, but oh well. The story is Google introduces Product Studio, a tool that lets merchants create product imagery using generative AI. So Google had a marketing live event. And then, so this is more towards marketers. And the story pretty much is the title. There is a tool now that makes it easy to create product imagery. They can use this Merchant Center Next, which is Google's platform for businesses to manage how their products show up on Google. It can also improve the quality of small or low resolution images. And it should be out for people to use in the US uh, within the next few months. So again, more, more things are just get built into the things you're already using. Onto applications and business. Of course, another big winner in the surge we've seen in AIs and NVIDIA, and we just saw a pretty massive stock rally for the company. So on Thursday, not too long before recording this, NVIDIA surged 24% in one of the largest one-day gains for a US stock after a very strong revenue forecast, which apparently signals that Wall Street 
hasn't yet priced in the future potential of AI. So the the surge really um, more than doubled the stock value for the year. It increased Nvidia's market cap by 184 billion to 939 billion total. That means that they are inching ever closer to joining the Trillion Club. Analysts are saying they've never seen guidance like what NVIDIA just put up with their second quarter outlook. They projected quarterly revenue more than 50% above the Wall Street average estimate and said it'd have more supply of AI chips in the second half to meet the demand surge. Um, The CEO, Jensen Huang, said that $1 trillion worth of equipment and data centers would have to be replaced with AI chips as generative AI finds its way into more products and services. And Huang's own wealth has grown 98% this year to $27.3 billion. So really um, a happy company here. No kidding. Yeah. And this is, uh, you know, coming on the heels of NVIDIA already having an amazing decade with AI. Let's not forget that the AI hype train has been with us for pretty much more than a decade now. It's just that it's really been supercharged recently. So NVIDIA's uh, value growth had already been like stratospheric just in the past five years, 10 years. And now it's getting yet another boost as everyone is piling in. All these countries want to get supercomputers, etc. Perhaps not surprising. And really a reminder that NVIDIA still kind of has a stranglehold on the hardware side of the market. There's, we've seen people, uh, companies build their own chips and uh, you know Meta and Microsoft and Google. But as far as one company that pretty much supplies most of the hardware for AI, that's NVIDIA, and that's probably not going to change anytime soon. Yeah. One thing that we're seeing, or I'm seeing a lot of people comment recently too, is just when it comes to the competitiveness, because we are seeing a lot of different companies coming up trying to challenge NVIDIA in terms of AI hardware. But you do tend to hear a lot about how Huang seems to be still running the company a little bit like a startup. It does seem like he's a really, really impressive founder and CEO. And so it does feel like NVIDIA just is continuing to move at a really rapid pace. And I feel like that's going to be, that's going to continue to be important for them. And I I have the feeling they're definitely going to continue to innovate a lot. Definitely. Yeah. So, (laughs) you know, I'm a happy customer of NVIDIA. We use their GPUs, I imagine. You use their GPUs. So at least they're not abusing their monopoly just yet. Indeed. Next, uh, really kind of an interesting story from TechCrunch uh, titled, VCs love to talk about AI, but they aren't writing as many checks as you might think. So you might imagine with the, you know, kind of crazy fervor for AI in the past half year now, that there would be an explosion of uh, investing in all these companies but that's not really the case. So the amount of investment has actually been falling since 2021. And even in the first quarter of 2022, that was way smaller than the first quarter of, sorry, in the first quarter of 2023 was way smaller than the first quarter of 2022, the number of deals fell from about 900 to about 550, and the total funding fell 
to almost a third to uh, 5.4 billion from um, you know something like 15 billion uh, much larger number so it appears to be the analysis here is that pretty much there was a lot of investment in general in 2021 in AI and metaverse and web free. Then the economy started doing not so good in 2022. And those economic factors are still with us, even if AI is very exciting. Um, Yeah, uh, counterintuitive, but that's how it is. Yeah, not being a venture capitalist, I'm not going to pretend I know everything that's going on here. But it would make sense perhaps that a dampened economic outlook and a lot of the discourse we saw, I think VCs in the past couple of months and founders have really had this sort of batten down the hatches mentality. And so I can imagine that even with the surge of interest in AI, there this is kind of like a multivariate problem right there's different things that are intersecting here some of the variables are going to be more powerful than others and so it's kind of hard to disentangle everything yeah it's all pretty uh, related there is a detail here that's uh, kind of interesting is that if we narrow down to just vc funding in silicon valley that actually improved. So capital raised by AI startups in the Silicon Valley rose by 41% compared to the final quarter of 2022. Uh, So there is definitely more interest. That's not very surprising given, again, all the news we've been covering for half a year now. But uh, yeah, it's still ultimately a different environment with VC. I know my startup, if, if we had been around a few years ago, we would have been showered with money. Nowadays, it's not so easy to just get people to throw money at you. So um, maybe that's a good thing. We won't be uh, you know, inundated with crap AI companies that make money despite having no real idea of what we're doing. But uh, maybe it's a shame because things will be slower than they have to be. Let's move on to the section's lightning round. First off, we've got something on Amazon. If you think that they didn't deliver to you fast enough, they're focusing on using AI to get stuff delivered to you even faster. And one of the main focuses for this is logistics. This turns into a number of, of different things here. So really what Amazon wants to do is to minimize the distance between its products and customers. If you're ordering a particular item on Amazon, it might be stocked in a warehouse near you, which makes it very easy to get it to you quickly, but it could also very well be in another state, in which case that's not so easy. So this is a a pretty important thing. Um, Amazon wants to use AI systems to figure out basically where to place its inventory. They've been focusing on this regionalization effort to ship products to customers from warehouses that are closest to them rather than, as I said, from another state, from another part of the country. And to do that, they're using technology that is capable of analyzing data and patterns to predict what products will be in demand and where. You can imagine that there would probably be regional preferences and in, in the foodstuffs and other things people buy. So if a product is nearer to customers, Amazon would be able to make same day or next day deliveries, just like what the Prime subscription offers without you having to do that. They're also focusing quite a bit on robotics and fulfillment centers to help with repetitive tasks like lifting heavy packages. 
they say that 75% of Amazon customer orders are handled in part by robotics. But their executives kind of describe this as not full-on automation of people's jobs, but humans and technology working together. So really, it seems like a, a pretty big and important choice they're making to ensure, or maybe not ensure, but just to think about how can we make people more effective, allow them to do different things in the context of the warehouse. Yeah, we discussed only a few weeks ago about how Walmart is also starting to automate robotics in its uh, fulfillment centers with the main idea, main idea being to remove the heavy lifting and repetitive tasks that are more manual from you know the human employee and, and make the human employee do more high level work. So clearly this makes a lot of sense and hopefully we are all going to be the beneficiaries of these efforts. Next, we have self-driving car startup Haumo.ai unveils low price delivery robot. So the great wall motor back Chinese self-driving car startup Haumo, which we just mentioned, unveiled the latest generation of its autonomous delivery vehicle, which is priced at about $12,700 or $89,999 RMB. So it is pretty cheap from what I understand. That is may seem like a lot, 12000 but for a full-on delivery vehicle, that is uh, pretty impressive. It is equipped with chips from Qualcomm for... Uh, having AI processing and a sensor suite. Not sure how ready this is to deploy, but you know, it there is a lot of delivery in China from what I understand. And this I would not be surprised to see this actually being uh, rolled out before any sort of autonomous delivery in the US. For sure. It does seem like when it comes to the particular application of delivery in many circumstances, you might have pretty predictable routes. And so I can see how, I mean, I guess on the one hand, there's of course the low price of this thing, but then also if we factor in things like predictability and routes, then suddenly we're not dealing with maybe the the full-on self-driving problem here. Although of course you can have a lot of features of that. Roads can still be unpredictable. You can get pedestrians and so on. But at the very least, it's a little bit less than a full-on open mapping problem that you're having to deal with. Yeah, and if there's no one in the car, right, aside from your groceries or whatever, reliability is much smaller because uh, it's just less likely to harm people, I would imagine. Mm-hmm. While Haomo is, is offering things in China, we've got some more autonomous ride-hailing delivery services. Uber is offering these using Waymo's robo-taxis, at least in the Phoenix, Arizona metropolitan area. Um, this is kind of a, a further development. Uber has had its own rocky history with trying to internally develop self-driving and then eventually sold off their unit to Aurora. But they're still kind of engaging in self-driving. And I think that some analysts like Ben Thompson, for example, are certainly of the opinion that Uber should never have tried to internally work on self-driving. It seems they're finally realizing that lesson. Um, so really, they're trying to pair their own technology and all-electric fleet with their customer network. So Waymo is really getting an opportunity to reach more people here. 
For sure. I'm a little surprised that this didn't happen with Lyft before. As far as I know, this was Lyft strategy from the start to partner with a company rather than develop their own autonomous driving tech, which Uber <laughs> not why, yeah, kind of foolishly decided to do. Uh, it is a big deal currently to use these Waymo autonomous rides. You need to install their app. And I suppose with this, if you have Uber, you can just use Waymo's autonomous driving like normal. And it will probably be cheaper than having a human driver. So uh, we've discussed Waymo a couple of times in the past few weeks, and this is yet another exciting development. I really look forward to being driven around by a Waymo car. Next, we have Intel announces Aurora Gen AI, generative AI model with 1 trillion parameters. So uh, Intel made a bunch of announcements recently, and they say that they are working with Argon National Library and HPE to create a series of generative AI models for the AI community with uh, some having one trillion parameters. So this is really just an announcement, uh, you know, not too exciting. They say that this can be used for, for the design of molecules and materials to the synthesis of knowledge, stuff for scientific applications. Not sure how excited we should be about, uh, we should be about this, but, you know, yet another generative AI model here for scientific applications. It would be cool if they actually follow through on this. Following up on generative models for science in a completely different domain, Canada's Sanctuary AI aims to create the world's first human-like intelligence and general-purpose robots. They have now announced what is called a major step forward. They unveiled their sixth-generation general-purpose robot named Phoenix. They've demonstrated this humanoid robot for hundreds of different tasks identified by customers from more than a dozen different industries. The humanoid robot stands at about five feet, seven inches. It weighs 155 pounds. So about the size of, of an average human, it can carry a payload of up to 55 pounds. It has a maximum speed of three miles per hour. Um, pretty interesting development here. I guess we all saw Elon introducing the Tesla bot and his affirmation that if you want to solve the AI safety problem when it comes to robots, just make sure it can't run any faster than three miles per hour and you can kind of outrun it. So maybe the same thing going on here, but it, it does seem like humanoid robots is a space that with the growth of generative AI, I'm not seeing as much of and a very, very difficult problem. So I am curious to see what the development on that looks like. Definitely. I think from more of a roboticist perspective, uh, it's been an interesting year because there's really been an explosion in these industry attempts at making general purpose humanoid robots that really wasn't much of a thing until um, OpenAI did their Tesla bot and since then, we've seen multiple companies, some of which we've covered, there must be at least three or four major players with their own announced prototypes and so on. We've discussed it a bunch before. I'm not a big believer in it. But regardless, the more people are working on manufacturing the hardware and making it cheaper, the sooner we'll have these sorts of things deployed in factories or other locations. So I think it's exciting. So for projects in open source, we've really got one 
main story here. And this is a couple of moves coming out of Stability AI, which you're probably familiar with because of Stable Diffusion. So they released something called Stable Studio, which is an open source version of Dream Studio. Dream Studio is its commercial interface for generating stable diffusion images. They say that the launch marks a fresh chapter for the interface, and it showcases Stability AI's dedication to advancing open source development within the AI ecosystem, which is very on brand for them ever since the beginning. Imad Mostak, their founder, has been very open, no pun intended, and for kind of forward about the fact that Stability really wants to support an open source ecosystem and make everything everywhere as open as possible. Um, he has made it clear that the company's for-profit business model kind of goes beyond its open source models when it comes to revenue. Um, so they will have sectoral and commercially licensed models via their partners, um, sort of like AWS tier data. They'll build custom models for the largest companies and governments. Um, and they're continuing to highlight their open source bona fides by taking their message to the U.S. Capitol. Um, in addition, some of their, their other work um, has been followed by a paper titled The Importance of Open Models for Transparency, Competition, and Resilience in AI, Considerations for AI Oversight in the United States. Um, they've been encouraging uh, U.S. Senate subcommittees to vigorously promote openness in AI. So really uh, trying to push that label forward. Yeah, this is uh, pretty surprising. We have been talking about stability AI and open source almost weekly. They've been really doing a lot. So I think the title here is merited, but this is going even beyond that. Their main commercial offering, as far as I know, is Dream Studio, which is similar to Midjourney or DALI. You buy credits to be able to generate images. Now they essentially open sourced it or a version of it. And if another company wanted to go ahead and release a competitor uh, product, then now it's kind of trivial because you have a product right there open sourced. So also building on something we've discussed um, maybe a few weeks ago where it appears to be the company is in trouble, burning from a lot of money and doesn't have a very clear business model or real strategy to make money. Here, they have this kind of vague idea of they'll have sectoral or commercially licensed uh, models via their partners, such as Amazon, and they'll build custom models for larger companies and governments. But this is all very hand-wavy, it seems to me. And the more you enable open source to move faster and get better, the less you need proprietary uh, models to build. So good for us, good for the AI community, but uh, still kind of confusing as a strategy for business. Agreed. And yep, that's the main story. We're going to move on to a few lightning round stories next, starting with a pretty cute uh, project, GP Team collaborative AI agents. So this is an open source project on GitHub that uses GPT-4 to create multiple agents who collaborate to achieve predefined goals. And it's pretty new. And the idea is to basically kind of emulate teamwork by having these multiple models that run in parallel 
and interact and accomplish their directives. Uh, we've discussed this general idea, I think, a month or two ago with that Stanford paper uh, where they had that little like uh, city with many agents. And it appears that with things like out of GPT and now GPT team, people are really fans of this whole thing of having GPT be turned into agents and autonomous sort of entities rather than just be a language model. Yeah, I think this is pretty fun. Um, I I do want to be, I guess, careful about some of the ways we talk about this. And I think that um, when we talk about these things as agents and, you know, we speak of them being autonomous, there are a lot of really exciting, I think, sandboxed ways like the generative agents paper you're referring to that they can be used. Um, also, if you're interested in more about the generative agents paper, I have an interview with the first author coming out in a couple of weeks. So do look out for that. But uh, plug over. That being said, I, I do think that some projects out there like AutoGPT, for example, sparked a lot of discourse among like VCs and pretty much anybody watching things being like, oh my God, it's going to be able to do everything. And it seems like AutoGPT, while it's cool, probably isn't something that you should actually be using for like critical tasks you might want to get done. So while I think it's worth, you know, watching these things, um, there's there's still quite a bit of distance to cover, I think, before these become like robust services that you might want to use for things that you actually seriously care about and can't afford to get wrong. Yes, this is still very new. In fact, in the readme of this GitHub, they do mention that the implementation of agent memory and reflection is directly based on that Stanford paper of generative agents. So... Uh, yeah, all of this is very emerging. It's a very exciting trend, but I don't think we quite understand how any of this will work. And I think none of it really probably will work reliably for a little while. Our next story. So immediately after the announcement of models like ChatGPT or a little bit later, people figured out how can I get APIs for these things? Because of course, OpenAI was expected to roll out their own and probably charge developers who wanted to integrate it into applications for those APIs. So uh, this next little project is a BARD API, the Python package that returns a response of Google's BARD. Um, you might have noticed if you use BARD at all or have heard people talking about it that its capabilities seem to have quite significantly improved. There are a lot of people who are talking about having used BARD. I've used it a little bit myself, and it seems to have gotten quite a bit better. There's a lot of people out there who seem to prefer it to ChatGPT. Um, really, maybe depends on your usage. But this package is designed for application to a couple of different Python packages. And this BARD API, um, I guess, is not a free service, but Rather, it's a tool provided to assist developers with testing certain functionalities, uh, basically due to the delayed development or release of Google's own BARD API. Yeah, this is an open source API that was based on reverse engineering. So it's kind of unofficial and a little bit hacky. And hopefully soon there will be an official API so developers can actually start using it. But for now, if you really want to get going and have uh, something powered by Barred uh, programmatically, now you have a way to do that. 
And moving back to Google, we have Google's open source AI tool lets me play my favorite Dreamcast game with my face. So once again, we're going uh, to Google I.O. and some announcements. And this one was about an accessibility tool. So this is motivated by a streamer, uh, Lance Carr, who has a rare form of muscular dystrophy that makes him unable to use his hands. So uh, the streamer actually uses a webcam to control games with their face. Uh, and it turns out you can buy hardware and, and services to enable this, but they're pretty expensive. And they were actually destroyed in a house fire for this particular streamer. And yeah, this uh, game face is an AI-powered tool that makes it so you can just directly from a webcam control uh, your computer and play games just with your face. Very exciting. And our final story for this section, Abu Dhabi has made an AI model open source called Falcon 40B, 40B again being 40 billion parameters. Um, they've made this large-scale model available for research and commercial use. Um, this was announced by the government's Advanced Technology Research Council. ARTC's uh, commercial investment arm, Venture One, said it would also back viable ideas that come from using the model. Um, to, again, recap, Falcon 40B is another foundational large language model. It was trained on one trillion tokens and developed within the Technology Innovation Institute, which is a research center within their Advanced Technology Research Council. Uh, it seems like from a couple of things that I've seen or a couple of notes that Falcon is a pretty strong model compared to a lot of the open source ones we're seeing out there. Yeah, actually, this was surprising to me. I wasn't haven't heard of this until this article and i haven't seen much chatter about it on twitter or elsewhere but 40 billion parameters that's quite a bit we really don't have many models of that size i'm not even sure if the biggest llama model is open source uh, fully or if it has been leaked so yeah if this is actually strong this is a pretty big contribution to ai from abu dhabi and the technology innovation institute there on to research and advancements, starting with Instruct Blip, the world general purpose vision language models with instruction tuning. This is, I feel like we just talked about something very similar a couple of weeks back, but as you might imagine from the title, the idea here is that you can have a visual language model where you provide the model with an image and some text. So you can, for instance, give it an image and say, describe this to me or explain to me why this is funny or why it is weird. And it will provide text to respond to your query. And just a couple of weeks back, we had, I believe, the first of these where it was instruction tuned. So instead of just doing supervised training, it's doing the same thing as ChatGPT and other chatbots do where they fine tune or train a little bit more on these examples with good and bad kind of chat outcomes. And this one is really about variety. So they gather 26 publicly available data sets and various tasks like image captioning, visual reasoning, image question answering, 
uh, all sorts of stuff, video question answering, and yeah, just do instruction tuning with those data sets and achieve state-of-out results and open source them. For sure. This is um, a pretty, pretty exciting model. I think that the instruction-aware visual feature extraction, the method they introduced, um, is, is super interesting. I can't say I followed InstructBlip that carefully, but um, it does seem like this is another super important development. Um, let me <laughs> move on before I... Do you have anything more to add on it or... I think another thing to note here is this is really part of this whole trend we are seeing starting last year, but really even more so this year, where we are really moving into multimodality with AI. So last week we discussed how Meta had their like six modality embedding thing, and we've been talking about many vision language models recently. Uh, this also has some video language, uh, which we'll cover in a bit. So multimodality, long, a real challenge for AI and deep learning, I think is kind of the next frontier combined with large language models and foundation models that we are rapidly making progress on. Yeah. And I think integrating ideas like instruction tuning for multimodal models and not just language models themselves. Um, I mean, there is a pretty natural thing there since you're going to use instruction tuning on language, but it'll it'll be interesting to watch, I guess, and see how these techniques get refined and if they kind of manifest differently once we start scaling them in that way. Yep, for sure. So next up, we've got a pretty exciting AI tool called DragGAN that basically does what it sounds like. Again, GAN is your basic generative adversarial network. And what's going on here is the researchers are studying a pretty powerful but underexplored way of controlling GANs. So you can drag any points in the image to precisely reach target points. For example, you could change the dimensions of a car or manipulate a smile into a frown. And you can basically do that with like a simple click and drag. The way they achieve this um, through this drag GAN model consists of two main components. It includes one, a feature-based motion supervision. This drives the handle point to move towards a target position. And then a new point tracking approach that leverages the discriminative GAN features to keep localizing the position of their handle points. Um, so again, a pretty interesting deformation method. Yeah, I won't pretend I fully understand what that means. That's just what they say in the abstract. Uh, it looks like a neat approach. Uh, like high-level idea seems to be dragging the image features. So you can drag a pixel, and that kind of goes into the bending space, the high-level abstraction, and then that kind of magically winds up working out. And really, as with many of these image manipulation things, you should try and just go to the link and see it yourself. So as a reminder, we have links to all of these stories in the description of this podcast episode and at last week in that AI. You can see pretty cool examples of like you have a cat and you can open its mouth or you can like move, rotate the direction in which a lion is looking and stuff like that just by clicking and dragging. Very intuitive, works really well. And I guess kind of a demonstration that GANs are still maybe needed to some extent, even though most text-to-image generation and generative AI has moved on to diffusion models kind of 
somewhat amusingly Gens used to be overage now most people don't like them mm-hmm so first off in the lightning round, we have an article called Some Neural Networks Learn Language Like Humans. Um, the short of it is our researchers compared the brain waves of humans listening to a simple sound to the signal produced by a neural network analyzing that same sound and found the results to be uncannily alike. And to their knowledge, the observed responses to that same sound stimulus are the most similar brain and artificial neural network signals reported thus far. They show that even pretty general networks that don't have any evolved biases for speech or other sounds show this kind of correspondence to human neural coding. Um, they also fed the same ba sounds to two different sets of neural networks where one had been trained on English sounds, the other on Spanish sounds. It started by making pretty random sounds, but after 40,000 rounds of interactions with a discriminator, it looks like they're using the discriminator generator setup. Um, the generator got better, eventually producing proper sounds. So again, in these measurements, they're kind of looking at um, how these networks are sort of responding and, and the patterns that kind of happen when they respond to certain sounds. And so it's interesting to see some of these overlaps. I'm like skeptical about reading them too carefully. I feel like there's a lot of discourse going on that is assuming things like functionalism and that the way the human brain works is roughly corresponding to the way that we think artificial neural networks work or ought to work. Um, and a lot of these things, I think some researchers kind of just take as like a given or scientific consensus. Um, so I do want to be pretty careful myself about reading too deeply into these results. But it is pretty interesting. Yeah, it's worth noting this is actually offered by neuroscientists and computational linguists. So this is not just, you know, they, they have a pretty good background in these sorts of things. It builds upon prior results we've seen even years ago of how you can correlate the activations in visual models to brain activity. So there's been this general kind of feeling of, oh, maybe somehow there's an emergence of some similar things. Which, if you think about it, might not be too surprising. Ultimately, we're just doing pattern recognition, and there's probably certain techniques that tend to work better than others. Uh, but yeah, this is interesting. It's This article is from Quanta, which is a very cool magazine. Their stories tend to be very well-written and pretty detailed technically. So if you'd like to hear more and, and get into the details, please do follow up on that link. Now from Meta, another big player in research and open source, we have introducing speech to text, text to speech, and more for 1,100 plus languages. So that's basically what it is. It's uh, expanding from what tends to be the case of maybe 100 languages to this much larger number. Uh, it covers, they have a little map that shows that the coverage of languages now goes all over the globe. There's a lot of less uh, popular uh, languages that don't have as much data on them. So they turn to things like the Bible, which has been translated to, I don't know, like presumably at least 1,100 languages. And um, yeah, now their text-to-speech and speech-to-text, their collected pairs of text and audio, which was pretty challenging. 
and they did it, and it appears to work pretty well. It's interesting to note that, at least according to their analysis, their models perform equally well for male and female voices, um, especially given that the data is pretty domain-specific, read by male speakers. So I'm curious a little bit about some of those generalization capabilities, if that claim really holds up um, in further analysis and use that we see. Yeah, it'll be interesting. It's a pretty fun idea to basically create a data set of readings of the New Testament in all these languages. So you get an average of 32 hours of data per language. Uh, you would think that maybe because it's so constrained to just this specific piece of text, it wouldn't perform very well, but uh, it looks like maybe it does. So that is pretty cool. There is a lot of writing in the Bible, so. <laughs> Moving into a different domain, we've got something called video chat, which is an end-to-end chat-centric video understanding system developed by merging language and visual models. This comes to you from researchers from the Shanghai AI Laboratory's OpenGV Lab, Nanjing University, the University of Hong Kong, the Shenzhen Institute of Advanced Technology, and the Chinese uh, Academy of Sciences. They developed a novel dataset containing thousands of videos and densely captioned descriptions and discussions given to ChatGPT. Um, and so this kind of integrates video foundation models and large language models via a learnable interface. It apparently excels in spatiotemporal reasoning, event localization, causal relationship inference. That's a, a pretty big claim there. Um, and so, again, this is a, a pretty exciting, I think, um, development where we're now like creating sets of systems and the LLM part here is pretty powerful where we're able to integrate these models and then start to understand an entire new modality. So you can ask it to sort of reason about, you know, I'm in this video, what happens if I like move a ball from this location to this location? I think there's just this video been going around of um, Jan LeCun telling Lex Friedman a couple of years ago that, hey, you know, I don't think that you'll be able to develop a system that understands what happens when I like move this object across a table or like push it across the table by just training on text. And it turns out that you can ask language models those things and they understand them because I guess we say enough about what happens when you do that kind of thing in text. So I think it'll be pretty, pretty interesting just to see what the possibilities for understanding and kind of conceptualizing, thinking about what happens in different modalities um, what that looks like when you start to integrate language models, especially super big pre-trained language models together with some others. Yeah, and the other thing I took away from this is it is similar to a lot of other research in multiple modalities. We've been seeing that it is found if you train two foundation models that primarily focus on one modality, kind of gluing them together often turns out to be not all that hard. So here, for instance, they have, uh, as one of the main things, a perception tool that basically summarizes what happens in a video with text. So it has like time steps and it explains, okay, here's what I'm seeing, here's where it's moving. And then you can chat about it. And that feels like that seems like a hacky and kind of stupid approach. But if you think about it, 
you know, maybe our brain does a similar thing of like in the background, uh, our, you know, video recognition or like image understanding just sort of summarizes the content of the image in some sort of textual linguistic sense. Either way, this actually works pretty well. And once again, it's showing how big, big pre-trained models plus data plus some uh, instruction tuning can do pretty magical things. And now moving on to something that's outside of text or video images, we have machine learning reveals sex-specific Alzheimer's risk genes. So in this new study from uh, Nature Communications, there is now a discussion of a possibility of de detecting genetic variants that could predict the risk of Alzheimer in males and females using machine learning. Uh, it's kind of predictably critical to identify genetic contributors to, you know, uh, Alzheimer's. That is one way to do risk assessment and prepare for it and have better for your predict approaches. And that's here true in the case of being a little more granular and detecting the right genes for men and women. Uh, there's really not a ton of understanding about all this stuff. And uh, obviously, it's pretty dang compl uh, complicated, but this study has used machine learning to basically find some correlations and figure out some of what you can predict given specific genes about the affinity towards Alzheimer's. Final story for this section is LIMA, which stands for less is more for alignment. You are probably aware from maybe listening to previous podcasts or other coverage of how language models are trained that these large language models roughly are trained in two stages. The first is this unsupervised pre-training from raw text. And that's, again, where you're using your standard language modeling objective. You're like, hey, here's the entire internet. Learn to predict the next word. And the goal of that is basically for the model to learn general purpose representations of words that it might then use in other tasks. Because as it turns out, learning to predict the next learning to predict the next word teaches you a lot of things about language. That is by far the most expensive computationally monetarily part of this process. The second part is large-scale instruction tuning and reinforcement learning to better align to end tasks and user preferences. That is how you get something like ChatGPT, because when you initially get a language model and you ask it to do something, you ask it a question like, please fill out this form. It doesn't actually want to fill out the form for you. It doesn't recognize that as an instruction. It is trying to predict the next word. So it might follow that with more instructions instead of actually responding to what you want it to do. So this study actually measures the relative importance of these two stages of training. Again, the unsupervised pre-training, predict the next word, and tuning so that it actually responds to your instructions by training a 65 billion parameter llama language model. That's again, the model that came out of Meta. They fine tuned it with the standard supervised loss on just 1000 carefully curated prompts and responses without any reinforcement learning or human preference modeling. Uh, this human preference modeling again is where you had that part of the training process where a model was prompted with an instruction. They looked at a bunch of outputs, had humans kind of 
laboriously rank those outputs, trained a preference model on how the humans rank those outputs, and then used reinforcement learning to kind of get the model to produce outputs that would actually score highly based off of the ranking model. Um, but they found that this pretty small scale thing, again, less is more, demonstrated remarkably strong performance. It was able to follow specific response format from just a handful of examples in the training data. Um, and that it generalizes well to unseen tasks that it hadn't seen before. So um, their basic conclusion from this is that basically all of the knowledge in large language models is learned during pre-training. And so only limited instruction tuning data is necessary to teach models to produce high quality output, which is a super interesting finding. Yeah, this was, I think, had made some waves within AI research uh, because it is pretty unintuitive. Uh, I think the trend has been to assume you need maybe 50,000 prompts or collection of data. Uh, and this works really well. So in a controlled human study, uh, they found that responses from Lima are either equivalent or strictly preferred to GPT-4 in 43% of cases. And then that goes up to 58 for BARD and 65 for an GPT-3. And yeah, with much less prompting, with a careful selection, it turns out that you can do really well. So this is kind of highlighting how little we really understand about a lot of this stuff. We just sort of have started doing it and the intuition says you should get as much human label data as you can, but maybe you know you get a lot of signal out of the particular types of data. And here they actually do a breakdown where they collect um, a fifth of it from WikiHow, a uh, fifth of it from Stack Exchange, which is a question answer website, uh, and, and various other sources, really only like 10 types of different uh, prompts, and just that works really well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think just a note that basically what's happening during pre training is this thing is picking up knowledge, and then like everything after that is okay, well, how do we? get this thing to efficiently retrieve its knowledge, to present that knowledge in the format we want, um, dependent on the kind of prompting you're given it, is something that we've seen in a lot of literature on like in context learning, for example. Um, and there are these ideas of how ICL is almost a sort of like Bayesian process where your model has these kind of latent concepts. It sort of knows about, um, you know, what it is to basically provide like a positive or negative sentiment review on something. And really all you're doing when you prompt it later on or you fine tune it to something is you're getting it to kind of dig back into itself, to dig back into the stuff it learned during its training and just dig that out efficiently when you need it to. I, I am going to pretend I understood that. I, I sort of I sort of get it. I may have seen that, but a little bit too technical, Daniel. I don't know. It might have been a little too much. But let's move on to policy and safety. And first story here is Biden-Harris administration takes new steps to advance responsible AI. This is covering an updated roadmap to focus federal investments in AI research and development. We saw that recently also for Britain. And now we have that in the US. The White House Office of Science and Technology Policy is releasing the National AI R&D Strategic 
plan. It has now been updated for the first time since 2019, and it outlines key priorities and goals for federal investments in AI R&D. It's been developed by experts across the federal government and with public input. And yeah, now it's come out. There's a new request for public input on critical AI issues. There's this request for information to seek input on national priorities. There's also reports on risks and opportunities related to AI education. So lots of stuff coming out of the government where, you know, given all this movement and given we saw just last week or two weeks ago, maybe, Various people went to the White House, including Sam Harris and, and these big names, to talk with Biden. Um, yeah, Sam Altman. Sam Altman, not Harris. Yeah, <laughs> Sam Altman. Uh, yeah, so lots going on in the government seems they're really picking up a pace. Yeah, I'm looking at their strategic plan right now, and it seems that they had so they had like a set of strategies um, for how they're going to think about and pursue. Um, the development of AI. And so this one really, like this update basically reaffirms it already existing strategies and adds a ninth. But I think that the important ones to focus on here, I'll, I'll talk about the ninth in a second, is um, strategies three and four, which are broadly focused around looking at AI impacts. So the third is understanding and addressing the ethical, legal, societal implications of AI. And that's really kind of around that interest of, I guess you'd articulate it as short-termism sometimes, just about thinking about accountability, fairness, privacy, bias, all those standard concerns. Strategy four is one that I think our next story is also going to start getting into this, but is gaining more and more weight, I think, in a lot of AI ecosystems, advancing knowledge of how to design AI systems that are trustworthy, reliable, dependable, and safe. And I think that is starting to look more and more like what a lot of the AI safety community is thinking about. You're seeing Sam Altman, you're seeing even now, you know, not just Joff Hinton, but Joshua Bengio has kind of gone over to this side of being really kind of getting deep into the AI safety literature. He was just on this DeepMind paper that was about model evaluation for extreme risks, which is super interesting. So I've been kind of like, I spoke to him at the end of last year, I think. And while he was concerned about potential things, about AI systems, I, I wouldn't put him, I wouldn't have put him in the long-termist camp, but it's been interesting to watch him kind of move closer and closer to that um, in, in the preceding, in the few last few months. Yeah, it seems like quite a few people have started moving towards this uh, AI safety kind of X-risk perspective, which we've been covering. Um, and we'll talk about that a little bit more actually next story. But um, this, yeah, we're just looking at a report and it's pretty cool. I, I, I think it seems to be well put together. It, it's not super specific, but the things it is discussing and laying out, it's about 50 pages uh, just scrolling through it, it covers a lot of what you would hope it would cover and appears to be well-written and, and researched and so on. So good to see that you know the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy has updated the National AI R&D Strategic Plan given this very important moment. Yeah, since I mentioned the new strategy they added, let me just quickly like read it before we move on. Um, this one, the new one is establishing a principled and coordinated approach to international 
collaboration and AI research. I think that a lot of these other strategies are more around domestic concerns. Um, I'm, I'm curious to see what that'll look like, given that it seems like Europe, I mean, is going to have a very different or already does have a very different approach to what AI regulation does and should look like. And naturally, uh, countries in, in Asia, for example, are going to have a pretty different approach. We are seeing China's sort of experiments and algorithmic legislation. So I'm curious how that international collaboration is actually going to manifest when they get down to business. Yeah, it'll be interesting. Uh it's quite the read. It's fairly readable, I think, this document for anyone. So if you are curious about the specifics, it is quite lengthy. It has 137 citations in it. So it does cover a lot of the existing discussion as well. Uh, yeah, I might give it a bit more browsing after this. I think this is pretty interesting. Our second story for this section is kind of hopping off the beat of long-termism and AI safety issues that we discussed recently. So um, if you're not familiar with Joshua Bengio, he is one of the three people who won the ACM Turing Award back in, I want to say it was 2018, along with Jan LeCun and Joff Hinton for essentially basically starting the whole deep learning revolution. These guys were doing research in deep learning when neural networks were not a popular thing at all during some of the AI winters and really kept pushing the label forward. So Benju is like one of the three biggest, most important people in the field of AI. As I mentioned, he seems to have been moving closer and closer to some of these existential risk AI safety perspectives. Um, and he's authored a number of blog posts recently. So the one we're going to talk about here is titled AI Scientists, Safe and Useful AI. Although since then, actually, he's had like a number of different posts on this. Um, but basically, the bottom line of his thesis here is that there may be a path to build immensely useful AI systems that completely avoid the issue of AI alignment. He calls them AI scientists because they are modeled after ideal scientists and don't act autonomously in the real world. They only focus on theory building and question answering. I think this kind of starts to peek at a big debate that we're having right now. Um, and that is the question of like, when we develop AI systems and when we think about how they're going to be used, there's a little bit of, I don't want to call it a fatalism, but an assumption that they're going to look a certain way, that they are going to be a certain way in the world. And that part of that certain way in the world they're going to be involves replacing humans and being totally autonomous. But I think one thing that it's important to remind ourselves of is that we are developing these systems. And so when we speak about replacing humans, about letting these systems be autonomous, there are choices we make upfront to enable those things to happen. Um, and yes, you know, there are concerns about there out there about AI systems becoming autonomous and like not allowing us to do certain things and us kind of relinquishing control when those systems get sufficiently powerful. But Again, we're still at a point where these things are very much tools. You are hearing Sam Altman kind of start to drift from that discourse when he was calling GPT-4 just a tool a couple of weeks ago. And I, I am curious just that the discourse has really started to move more in this X-risk direction, even among many people that I wouldn't have expected to think about things that way. Um, but I think it's important just to kind of settle on, we have choices about how to develop these things. 
Yeah, and to maybe underline the basic point of this blog post, it's something I agree with quite a bit, and that's this notion that the real threat of let's say catastrophic risk of something that isn't just disruption to due to misinformation, but really like all of us dying, would be if an AI can go off and do stuff on its own, uh, right? As opposed to being just a tool, like you mentioned. So the distinction here is between executives and scientists. Um, and the short version of this whole uh, post is that it would be best if we can limit our use of AI systems to model the observations it can get and answer any questions that are associated uh, with information, but so that they can't um, just go off and do stuff on their own. This is a fairly practical suggestion, I think. There are challenges to it, but as far as anything I've seen from AI safety people, it's uh, pretty nice. And just to, I guess, add one more thing, this post is, like you mentioned, from a couple of weeks ago. There is one more post since that was actually this last week, a few days ago, that is how rogue AIs uh, may arise. So that builds a lot of, on top of this intuition of autonomous versus not autonomous. That one is fairly theoretical. It has definitions and hypotheses and conclusions uh, and claims. So it's it's a bit of a long read and it's hard to summarize, but if you're very much into this uh, topic, then you can go to yoshiabenjo.org or, or go look at the link for this one uh, at lastweekend.ai and you can read the whole thing. And it's, it's quite readable. It's not super, I don't know, researchy. Yeah, if I can make a quick comment on that before we end, I think it's interesting just to note that there's been some reaction to this post of, oh my God, Yashua Benjo has become a Nick Bostrom fanboy or something like that. And while I do think that he is starting to take some of these concerns pretty seriously, and I think that he was always in that, like, you know, I am more concerned about present day things, but don't totally but, you know, maybe not as much as the long-termist camp about what they're concerned about. Um, I don't I don't know if I read this blog post this way. That being said, I haven't read the entire thing. But given what you said, how formal the post is, it feels almost like he's trying to think about, I mean, he does make a lot of presumptions in this article that people will say don't hold up to scrutiny, certain things he says about functionalism that I think... Um, are maybe presented as like scientific consensus, but aren't necessarily that way. Um, but he's probably been thinking about this stuff a long time. So, you know, give him some credit. That being said, um, yeah, I guess I'm, I feel like he's maybe trying to just like work things out for himself. I don't know how you read all this. I think, yeah, it's definitely something where, you know, a, a researcher kind of just jumps in and starts thinking about something. Uh, and it does appear to be a little bit from first principles, not necessarily um, citing too much existing research, although he does cite some like papers actually in this blog post. And I think this whole reaction of like, oh, he's becoming an X-risk guy. I'm I'm not a super big fan of Nick Bostrom and, and this general community personally, but I think just asking how rogue AIs may arise is a very reasonable question, and that's something I've also thought about. And in fact, if you say, okay, this is how rogue AI 
may arise, then you can decide, you know, how likely is that to actually happen given that would be your mechanism. Uh, so I'm a big fan and I definitely will actually read the entire post to see what uh, Yoshia thinks. On to the lightning round, back to policy from safety. First story is Israel aims to be AI superpower and advanced autonomous warfare. This is a pretty uh, short article from Reuters that just kind of mentions that this is the intent of Israel, according to the Defense Ministry Director General. Some discussion of what retired Army General Eyal Zamir said, uh, how there should be a, a dedicated organization for military, military robotics and a lot of uh, money. It covers a little bit on how Israel has already um, developed some things like autonomous uh robot surveillance jeeps and just this month there was an autonomous uh, intelligence governing submarine so there's already a lot of investments in tech as is true of israel in general but this whole thing of their mission being to turn the state of israel into an ai superpower is a little bit posturing i would say next up we've got a deep fake scan that just happened in china this is a, a pretty short story here basically there was a fraud in northern China. They used deepfakes to convince a man to transfer money. Um, police in the city of Baotou in Inner Mongolia say that this perpetrator used face-swapping technology to impersonate the victim's friend during a video call and receive a transfer of 4.3 million yuan, which translates to over $600,000. The man transferred this money believing the friend needed to make a deposit during a bidding process. Um, that seems like a lot of money to transfer during a friend. And this guy only realized he'd been duped after a friend expressed ignorance of the situation. Yeah, kind of a weird story to be like, you know, just maybe there was more context to it where it would have made sense to be just like, oh, I need $600,000. Please send it to me on a video call. But then again, I mean, this is definitely a kind of following up on a lot of these stories we've been discussing. And discussing of uh, impression scams using voice replication. And here there was face swapping tech involved, which is, I suppose, even more convincing. So yeah, these things we are seeing in the US that we've covered multiple times already are happening in China as well. And presumably they'll just start happening everywhere and yet more reason to just be aware of it and be wary of it. Be careful, friends. And then we have AI scanner used in hundreds of US schools misses knives. So that's basic the story is there's a security for firm that sells AI weapon scanners to schools and it's 3.7 million system for detecting weapons failed to detect a knife that was used to stab a student. Uh, there were multiple stab wounds. So this was a pretty bad attack. This was in uh, Proctor High School. And yeah, it's this is actually a pretty popular set of technology from the company Evolve. This is already deployed in major stadiums, the Manchester Arena in the UK, and now it is expanding into schools. It's in hundreds of schools in the US. Maybe this was a fluke, but the BBC investigation last year revealed that uh, testing had found that the system could not reliably detect large 
knives. It missed 42% of them and 24 walkthroughs. So yeah, not great. This is an interesting story of like, what does careful deployment of these systems look like and how should we strategize around that? Um, it's noted here that Evolve Technology wants to replace traditional metal detectors with AI weapon scanners. And that's like, it's probably, it sounds like something that would be nice. You know, we can improve our lives in lots of ways with these things. But again, given that, or if they really can't reliably detect large knives, I feel like we ought to, um, when implementing these systems, you, I, I feel like it makes more sense to kind of do a bit of a mixture, right? Like you, I mean, as long as it's not too onerous, I think the ideal situation is you have the sensor technology kind of acting along with the metal detector so that you can actually be sure there's kind of like a ground truth there when you're testing this thing out in the real world. Like, I think that, you know, when you're deploying AI systems and software, there are very similar principles about what happens when you are trying to migrate to the system for the first time. You don't just ditch the old and say, let's just throw everything to the AI system. You kind of have this incremental migration. Um, and so it seems like that sort of strategy is warranted and probably very, very important in these sorts of situations. Definitely. Yeah. And uh, if this is true that it's this bad, 42% failure case for large knives, clearly that is very problematic. Uh, you know, US high schools are wild. <laughs> this is kind of a sad state of things. But also, if it's in major stadiums, soccer fans are also wild. So I don't know. I think maybe uh, a good time to check in and have regulators maybe double check uh, why this is the case. Mm. And we have just one more story in synthetic media and art. Like I mentioned, this is a bit of a shorter episode. And the story here is that there was a fake AI-generated image of explosion near Pentagon that spread on social media. Uh, so this image showed kind of some smoke coming out of a building near the Pentagon. It went viral, and it appears to have caused a brief dip in the stock market. Then the fire department for Arlington, Virginia, said that it was aware of the social media report, reports, but there was no threats. Uh, and yeah, this is uh, just another example of a AI enhanced or AI generated image uh, being entered and uh, kind of fooling people, I suppose. Yeah, um, I feel like this whole discussion about oh no, people are going to be fooled by deep fakes and sort of the back and forth on this, how people were really worried about it a few years ago. And then there was research done that like people kind of, you know, they sort of get it, like they can tease out synthetic media from real media. But here we've seen a case where, I mean, this actually caused a brief dip in the stock market. Um, I think that there's a little bit of like people engaging in system one versus system two behavior here. And so I think there's like a few things blending in this story. One is that um, there do exist risks that come along with synthetic media and we ought to be aware of them. And I think that has implications for how we design systems, but then also think about like our interactions with media. I think that 
Um, I mean, for one, I think that it's maybe a little bit much to try to put all of the onus on the individual when it comes to we are living in a, a landscape where maybe the sources of media that we consume are starting to change and saying that you have to change everything about the way you engage with media yourself. There's a lot to that. Um, I guess one hope I have is that we can somehow like design things for more considered interaction that maybe considers and mitigates some of these risks a little bit more because they certainly do exist. And I think that's something ought to, to be done about them. Yeah. And, and this does add on to that general question of uh, how do these individuals, how do we as organizations and companies deal with this new trend, right? You've seen multiple uh, cases where it appeared to be that people were fooled and here maybe a lot of people thought it might be AI, maybe a lot of people didn't. This is an especially intriguing case because it's unclear where the image is from and it went viral. It was shared by many verified accounts, which is kind of where you pay for your Twitter uh, handle. And uh, the U.S. Department of Defense did confirm that the image was fake. So this almost feels like we all need to train ourselves to never, almost never believe just a, a tweet from a random person saying something. And as soon as you see some claim about something as dramatic as this, right, you want to go and check a verified source like the New York Times or Fox or whatever source you want that can actually tell you, you know, is this happening? If you don't see a news story about something as dramatic as this, then it's probably just some AI-generated uh, imagery. And potentially, I'm not going to say we know that, but it was <laughs> also spread by Russian uh, propaganda Twitter accounts. So that can also definitely happen. Hmm. Interesting. Okay, well, that's it for this episode. A bit of a short one. Thank you again, Daniel, for filling in this week. Lovely as always. And as usual, uh, you can find the articles we discussed here today and more at our uh, newsletter on our substack at lastweekin.ai. We will hopefully get back to answering your comments and questions next week. So feel free to email contact at lastweekin.ai for that. Please review the podcast. We love to see those five stars, as you might imagine. Share it to friends, etc., etc. But above all, please do keep tuning in. <laughs>